Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, May 5th. I'm Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, perspectives on the leak that indicates the Supreme Court is prepared to uphold Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban and overturn Roe v. Wade. Also, we talk with writer Jasmine Ward. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The leaked draft of a majority opinion in the Dobbs abortion case shows the Supreme Court's apparent readiness to overturn Roe v. Wade. It also seems to broadly expose so-called implicit rights in the U.S. to new scrutiny. Implicit rights are not specifically articulated in the Constitution, but some legal scholars understand them as offshoots of other constitutional rights. Mississippi College School of Law professor Matt Steffi addressed the issue Tuesday on Mississippi Edition. Loving versus Virginia, which is often thought of as a natural outgrowth of the equal protection of the law promised by the 14th Amendment. The opinion itself relies on the same idea of due process that underlies access to contraception and ultimately abortion. And there's no doubt that some combination of due process and equal protection do the work that supports the right to gay marriage. Civil rights activists say if the Supreme Court rules on the abortion case as it apparently intends to, an array of rights previously protected by the court could quickly fall. Vera Lyons is an attorney at the American Civil Liberties Union of Mississippi. While the Constitution does not explicitly say there is a right to an abortion, there are also other rights that unfortunately the justice seemed to cite negatively but are also not in the Constitution, such as the right to a same-sex marriage or the right to an interracial marriage. This right to privacy that Roe is based on really stemmed from a 1960s case, Griswold v. Connecticut, which found that couples have a right to privacy in their bedroom um, to use birth control. And he seemed to also cite that case negatively, which is concerning to me as an attorney at the ACLU who deals with civil rights, that this could open the door to undo other rights that are not explicitly stated in the Constitution. One thing is there's really no way, you can tell me, um, to police people behind closed doors. 
what would the implications be, if any, for trying to roll back, like what you mentioned, uh, someone using birth control in their own home? Would it be making access more difficult? Yeah, we could see, you know, in 2011, Mississippi tried to pass a personhood amendment. 58% of Mississippians shut that down, but we could see people uh, making laws for access to conception more difficult. We could see people trying to pass fetal personhood laws and stemming from that saying that, you know, any act of birth control which prevents um, an egg from being fertilized. I know sometimes those on the, you know, extreme of the pro-life movement seem to think that is preventing a fetus from having life and preventing that fetus from a right to life. So we could see access made more difficult. I, you know, actually, I myself, as a woman of childbearing age, um, went to get an IUD here in Mississippi, and I was pretty surprised by the um, OBGYN who told me that the clinic did not offer the copper IUD because they seem to see the copper IUD as creating miscarriages, which is not actually how the copper IUD works. So I think there is some misinformation out there um, amongst people who are not necessarily pro-choice. I think that legislatures are poised to, if this is the draft opinion that goes into effect, to try to pass laws that will restrict access to healthcare and to birth control. What do you see as coming out of this if the U.S. Supreme Court strikes down Roe v. Wade? What does that imply in your mind to other implicit rights? I'm concerned that it would be an open season on later decided cases, such as the right to birth control, the right to be free from anti-sodomy laws the right to same-sex and interracial marriage. I'm concerned that because of the way this opinion was written, he said that there was no right to abortion within the history of our nation. And that's a really strong originalist interpretation where you only look at what is explicitly in the Constitution without considering it as a living document that has to conform to today's society. You know, there are certain things that are not explicitly in the Constitution simply because they didn't exist at the time of the Constitution. You know, the rules that we have about people being tracked by GPS and electronic search warrants, these are not things that were necessarily explicitly written into the Constitution, but we've nonetheless had case law that have interpreted them because the times do change. So is this really a society we want to live in where our jurists are only considering laws that are, quite frankly, outdated and do not apply to our current society. What's the answer? I think the answer is, you know, it's a frustrating answer. We've been told to vote. And, you know, as people who want to keep reproductive choices free, we've voted. And we're at a situation where we have a court that does not represent the majority of Americans' beliefs due to machinations by the more conservative party. You know, um, Mitch McConnell helped keep Obama from seeing a Supreme Court justice, and Trump was able to put on three rather conservative justices who, even in their confirmation hearings, seemed to suggest that Roe was suggested president, but obviously they're voting to overturn this. I think the answer is through legislation, through, in Mississippi, possibly 
reopening the ballot initiative, um, getting something through the popular vote that would protect women's reproductive rights. I think that's what we're left at right now, because unfortunately, we have these people on the Supreme Court and they, they have been given lifetime appointments. So they've been kind of given this outsized power with this belief that doesn't reflect what the majority of Americans believe about abortion. Well, on the ballot initiative issue, it was brought up this past legislative session and discussed, but there wasn't anything done to file a bill and get it signed by the governor. Is it a possibility in your estimation that that could drag on and ultimately prevent Mississippians who may want to bring ballot initiatives before the people from doing so? I think it's a possibility. The way the ballot initiative was written, um, there was an even higher threshold um, of, of signatures and votes needed to get a referendum on the ballot um, than we had previously, than we had in the previous ballot initiative process that was shut down by the Mississippi Supreme Court. I think a lot of this has to do with politics. I think there was a lot of focus um, by the Speaker of the House and the Governor on getting rid of the income tax. I think they were more focused on that. There were a lot of bills that had popular support that did not make it through the legislative process. And quite frankly, I, I believe these legislators are not doing their job to accurately refre- reflect the will of the people. They have um, these agendas they want to push through. They're focused on them, and they're not supporting popular legislation. There was also um, legislation that had bipartisan support to expand Medicaid for postpartum mothers. And there was frustration even expressed by the pro-life side that if we're going to say we're the party that protects unborn children, we should be passing this. And again, that was shut down and didn't make it out of the legislature in favor of um, other bills. Well, Vera, we really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Vera Lyons with the American Civil Liberties Union. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Coming up, we talk with a state legislator who played a key role in passing Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The significance of the leaked draft opinion in the Supreme Court case over the state's 15-week abortion ban isn't lost on Mississippi lawmakers who originally passed the measure. Republican Joey Fillingain of Sumrall presented the ban to the Senate Public Health Committee back in 2018. In the wake of this new leak, he says he's cautiously optimistic the end of Roe v. Wade is near. Well, my hope and prayer is that it is overturned. I don't know about the likelihood of it. I mean, we've had a uh, Republican majority on the court when Roe v. Wade was originally decided, you know, so I don't think the conservative versus liberal makeup of the court always applies accurately in abortion cases. In the past, it certainly does not seem to have. But we're certainly very hopeful. And if this is, in fact, a legitimate version of a majority draft opinion that has circulated, and assuming those votes are 
going to stick and stay with that opinion. I think it's a great day for Mississippi, number one, that our law will be found constitutional, and it's an even greater day for the pro-life cause across the country. As a lawyer, are you disturbed that this document was even leaked? Amen, yes. Um, Not even as just an attorney, but uh, as a citizen, I mean, if you don't have the ability as a sitting U.S. Supreme Court justice to pass around a working draft of an opinion on any subject, it doesn't have to be abortion legislation, it could be taxation or anything else. I mean, if you don't have the confidence that you can pass about a rough draft of your work among the other eight justices on the court and it not be leaked to the media and leaked to the public when it's still sort of in its you know, stage of being modified and being you know, worked up, it really has a chilling effect on the ability of the justices to trust their colleagues, number one, to keep things confidential and for them to openly and freely debate amongst themselves the varying points of view that they have to in their roles as U.S. Supreme Court justices. So it's really sad that this has happened. And, of course, we don't know who the leaker was. My guess is that will ultimately be discovered. But whoever it was, you know, shame on them because regardless of where you come down on this particular issue, just the sanctity of the court's work and being able to um, debate internally before something becomes official and is made public really could cause a a lot of damage to the court as an institution and to the work they do um, there across from the U.S. Capitol. You have Clarence Thomas's wife who was texting, advocating for her position. Are we losing that distinction and sanctity that you refer to in terms of what is happening behind closed doors at the Supreme Court? It certainly seems that the institution is under attack um, by you know, pundits and politicians and people on all sides of the political spectrum. And it's being painted in the picture of being a very almost a smaller version of the Congress where you have Republicans versus Democrats or conservatives versus liberals. It was never designed to be that. It doesn't need to become that. And I think um, this certainly is not helpful because it does seem to inject partisan politics into the realm of the U.S. Supreme Court. And we need to try to preserve it as an institution that all Americans can look to with favor and with trust. And although we may not always agree and probably won't, we shouldn't always agree with the outcome of every decision that's handed down, we should um, be able to look at them Um, as a body that's non-political, that is judicial in nature and, you know, steeped in legal history, and that they interpret the laws according to the Constitution and not based on is the author, you know, from a Republican state or a Democrat state or a – I mean, I think it is troubling, and I hope that we don't continue down that road, but, I mean, that seems to be where we are right now. Republican Senator Joey Fillingain of Sumrall, thank you so much for sharing your insights on this important issue. We appreciate it. Thank you. As always, it's a pleasure to be with you, Desiree. Still ahead, we talk with writer Jasmine Ward. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. 
Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing a doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Writer Jesmyn Ward is speaking tonight at Galloway Methodist Church in Jackson. Ward is a professor of creative writing at Tulane University in New Orleans. Her published fiction explores African-American childhood and family life in the Deep South. Two of her novels, Salvage the Bones and Sing Unburied Sing, have won the National Book Award. She says Mississippi, her home state, deeply informs her writing. Mississippi can be a frustrating place, but at the same time, it is also a place that I love very much. Um, And it's full of people who I love very much. And I think that um, they really you know, that both, right, the place and the people, they inspire me. And, um, you know, I just, I want to, I think, bear witness to to Mississippi and, like, what living in Mississippi is like and to write about that in my work. That's why I do what I do, and that's part of the reason why I decided to, you know, return to Mississippi and try to live and work as a as a as an adult and as a writer in Mississippi. Where were you before you came back? I was in uh, the Bay Area in California, actually. I had some other job offers. You know, I could have gone other places, other states, but I chose to come back home. And saying unburied saying that story is about a mixed race thirteen year old boy with a white father who's in parchment and a mother who is black and an addict. You came up with these characters. What did you want to convey through this story? So I was I think I was interested in Jojo, you know, he's the the main one of the main characters is that thirteen year old mixed race boy and I was, like, really interested in what it means for him to have to deal with adult situations and adult problems, you know, and adult traumas before he should have to. I think that's what was most apparent, like, most clearly apparent um, about him as a character when when he first appeared to me when I discovered him. I also wanted to understand what it was like for him, you know, as a, um, you know, because he, when people, when people see him, like they don't think mixed race boy, they just think black boy. Right. And so I wanted to understand a little bit more about what it's like for a young black boy, his age growing up in the modern South. So when you say you wanted to find mm-hmm. out, do you do research on your characters? There are a lot of young children who are being raised by grandparents today. Right. I mean, I think that's just a, a sort of fact of the community that I grew up in and the extended family, like my extended family. And it's something that I've seen over and over again, like the way that family can take different shapes, you know, and that family always doesn't mean nuclear family, you know, like mom and dad and kids, that it can also mean, it can also be more creative, you know, and it can consist of a grandparent and 
some uncles and an aunt and a cousin, you know, like all of those people can be caregivers, I think. Um, so I think because I, I, see, I see that, that, uh, that that pops up in my work. Are there writers that inspired you? Yes. You know, Kiese Lehman is a writer who inspires me. William Faulkner inspires me. Natasha Trethewey inspires me. Jericho Brown inspires me. Um, Ada Limon inspires me. There's, there's a new writer who I just um, discovered. Well, I mean, she's, I don't think that, I think other people know about her, but I just discovered her, so she's new to me. There's a writer named Chanel Benz, and I think that she actually has some Mississippi connections, and her novel is really amazing, and it is inspiring to me. So I feel like I'm always um, discovering writers who who um, inspire me and who teach me and who, you know, make me want to evolve and continue to learn and grow as a writer. Tell us what it is that you plan to share with folks. So I'm working on a new uh, talk, a new speech about narrative. Um, and it's sort of about how you, how someone can, like, navigate the narratives that the world tells you about who you are and what you're capable of and what your inner voice can tell you about who you are and what you're capable of. And so you can do more than what you think you can if you listen to yourself? Right, right, versus listening to what the world, you know, often, I think often tells us about who we are and what we're worth and about our value and our potential. And lastly, where did your value come from? How did you grow up or did you grow up feeling worthy that you had worth? No, I that's something that I have um that I have not felt <laughs> and that I have struggled with my entire life. Um but I think um you know, it's I it's it, I figured out that it was just something that I was constantly going to have to like be aware of and work on because I think, you know, and I, I think I, I say this in my talk, but, you know, I think that the world is constantly, you know, sending messages to people like me that we are worth less um, and that we're not capable and that we have less pot- potential. So I think, you know, for some of us, um, you know, for some people like me, that it is a constant struggle to quiet the outer voices and to listen to, you know, the inner voice. And so when you say that, are you referring to being an African-American female? Yes. And also growing up poor, too, which I did. Um, so I think that all of those things, all of those factors um, really affected me, especially when I was younger. And in in overt ways and covert ways, I think I heard a lot of um, sort of story narratives or ideas about who I could be or who I couldn't be or what I was capable of or what I wasn't capable of. Do you think you're working that out in your writing? Um, I don't know. I mean, maybe in the speech, like in the speech, in the talk. Yeah, I'm definitely, um, you know, sort of teasing out different meanings and trying to figure it out. Um, but I don't think that's one of the primary reasons that I create. 
I think I create because because I love it. I because I love storytelling, you know. So when I sit down to write, I'm not necessarily thinking, "Oh, I'm, I need to prove to the world that I'm capable of this thing." No, I'm sitting down and I'm, you know, submerge, submerging myself into the world that I'm writing about because I love it. You know, I love the characters that I write about. I love the being in the places, you know, that I write about and like inhabiting that space imaginatively. Well, Jasmine Ward, an accomplished, very well accomplished writer and professor of English at Tulane University. Thank you so much for your taking the time to speak with us. Thank you. Jasmine Ward is speaking tonight at Galloway Methodist Church in Jackson. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Stick around for a full morning of Mississippi Radio. Coming up at 9, it's Creature Comforts. Then at 10, it's Autocorrect. And at 11, don't miss Southern Remedy. Find past installments of this and other Think Radio shows online at mpbonline.org. I'm Desiree Frazier. Join us tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi Edition only on MPB Think Radio. Have a good day.